Welcome to the Colonial Hills Podcast, a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church. We're in the second in a series of messages on the life of David under the theme, Facing Your Giants. As we open to 1 Samuel chapter 16 this evening, we see God preparing a young, obscure shepherd to one day, one day rise to be the most famous king in Israel and perhaps the most famous king in all the world. David, as you recall, was anointed in a private ceremony. Samuel the prophet did the anointing, and yet God was not yet done with Saul. And so in 1 Samuel 16, we have a crossover between the end of the reign of Saul and the beginning of the reign of, of David. And in that crossover, we see David moving from an obscure shepherd to a man who is perhaps the first known music therapist. David was a music therapist called into the throne room of King Saul in order to provide music for a madman. Saul had become mad in his turning away from the Lord, and an evil spirit haunted him. And while the focus of our series will be predominantly, of course, on David, we pause this evening to learn some lessons in the interfacing between David and Saul And particularly, we learn this lesson realizing that God is going to use these moments that he's given to David to witness the character of Saul on display, to witness the court and the courtiers in preparation for the day that he would be placed in that position. He's been anointed, but he's waiting for God to open the door, rather. And as he waits for God to open the door, he's learning a very big lesson about what it means to face the giant of despair, or to face the giant of depression. We're going to read beginning in verse 14 this evening, 1 Samuel 16, beginning in verse 14. But the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. And Saul's servant said unto him, Behold now, an evil spirit from God troubleth thee. Let our Lord now command thy servants, which are before thee, to seek out a man who's a cunning player on an harp. And it shall come to pass, when the evil spirit from God is upon thee, that he shall play with a hand, and thou shalt be well. And Saul said unto his servants, Provide me now a man that can play well, and bring him to me. Then answered one of the servants, and said, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite, that is cunning in playing, and a mighty valiant man, a man of war, and prudent in matters, and a comely person. The Lord is with him. Wherefore Saul sent messengers unto Jesse, and said, Send me David thy son, which is with the sheep. And Jesse took an ass laden with bread and a bottle of wine and a kid, and sent them by David his son unto Saul. David came to Saul and stood before him, and he loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David, I pray thee, stand before me, for he found favor in my sight. And it came to pass, when the evil spirit from God was upon Saul, that David took an harp and played with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the evil spirit departed from him. Let's ask the Lord to bless as we look into his word this evening. Father, we thank you for the privilege we have this evening of looking into your word and seeing a theme developed that's necessary for each of us to consider. I pray, Lord, that this passage this evening would be medicine for our souls indeed, that it would prepare us to be godly counselors to others, that it would be the counsel that our souls need as we've gone through a time of social distancing, 
for many of quarantining, for many a time when fellowship even with family members has been limited, and the loneliness has become pervasive. Thank you, Lord, that you never leave us and you never forsake us. But we pray very practically this evening that you'd use your word to instruct us so that we might be fortified for the battle that we enter into every day, every moment, every time that we get up and walk around. For we know that we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers, even of the air. I pray tonight, Lord, that you'd use your word to quiet our hearts and to help us to be fortified by faith to live for you. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. As you open the pages of the Bible, you find very early on the trouble of depression is almost ubiquitous. The first person to wrestle with a challenge of depression seems to be Cain. You'll remember how that Cain slew his brother Abel. And the Word of God says that God came to speak to Cain. And God said, why are you angry? And why is your countenance falling? From page to page, some of the Bible's great heroes are afflicted with what we would call depression or melancholia. You'll find that Jonah, Jonah chapter 4, was so grieved by the ministry that God had assigned him that he fell into a depression and God provided a gourd for him to be comforted by the gourd. When the gourd died, Jonah seemed to fall even into a deeper depression and anger even against God. Jeremiah's depression was so deep that he came to be known as the weeping prophet. Depression is a very great giant. In fact, the National Institute of Mental Health, in doing studies on the matter of depression, notes that 7.1% of American adults, some 17.3 million American adults, suffer with and wrestle with what we would classify as depression. And depression is growing among adolescents. In fact, 13.3% of American adolescents, that's 32 million American young people, if you will, typically between the ages of 17 and 22, are wrestling even now with the topic of depression. During the pandemic, there were all kinds of articles written on the 4th of May in 2020. The Washington Post published an article, the headline, Coronavirus Pandemic is Pushing America into a Mental Health Crisis. On the Uh, On June, rather, of 2020, Mariazzo Fava, a medical doctor, psychiatrist-in-chief at Massachusetts General Hospital, said, It's quite understandable the COVID-19 pandemic is likely to cause significant stress and psychological distress for a large proportion of the population, and we know that rates are progressively increasing. We have before us this evening in 1 Samuel 16 a text for our times. David is being introduced in 1 Samuel 16 to the giant of depression. David sees depression destroying the ability that Saul has to rule over Israel. God is preparing David for the time when he himself will be king and when he himself will face his own battle with depression. For indeed, David does face his own battle with depression. He writes of it many times in the Psalms. You read of his battle in Psalm 31, you read of his, or 32 rather, in Psalm 51. Here in Psalm 55, David says, Because of the voice of my enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked, for they cast iniquity upon me, in wrath they hate me, 
Listen to his description of his psychological circumstance when he says, My heart is sore pained within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fearfulness and trembling are come upon me. Horror hath overwhelmed me. And I said, Oh, that I had wings like a dove, for then will I fly away and be at rest. David in his youth is able to witness what depression did to King Saul and perhaps learn as he stood before King Saul as a minister of music and an armor bearer how to avoid this deep well in his own life. There are lessons here in 1 Samuel 16 for all of us. You see, some depression can be traced back to physical causes. We talk of postpartum. We talk of need for analysis because a person may find that their, uh, their very system is causing a physically induced depression. What we have before us here in 1 Samuel 16 is a spiritual depression. We know that with certainty because the depression that Saul faces was sent to him from the Lord. Now the wise pastor learns when talking with someone about depression to realize that some depression is indeed physically caused. And the wise doctor learns when talking with a patient who presents with depression to discover that some depression is spiritually caused. Two great causes of depression in this evening, we see a depression that certainly is caused spiritually, for it says in verse 23, it came to pass when the evil spirit from God was upon Saul. This depression that Saul is facing is a spiritual depression. And all of us need to be able to take God's word and do battle against the giant of depression. Saul's battle teaches us what it means to face spiritual depression in our own lives or to help others who are wrestling with spiritual depression in their lives. I want us to look this evening together at some of the symptoms of spiritual depression that are displayed in 1 Samuel, the 16th chapter. The 14th verse, you'll recall, says, The Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit of the Lord troubled him. Now before we look at the symptoms of spiritual depression this evening, I think there are two questions that we're going to have to address, we're going to have to answer. There are questions that come out of the 14th verse in this text. The first question ought to be this. Well, the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. Can the Spirit of the Lord depart from me? That's an important question. And you need, to, you need to understand that the Spirit of the Lord in the Old Testament did not operate as the Spirit of the Lord in the New Testament operates. The Spirit of the Lord in the Old Testament enabled believers for certain tasks, and the Spirit of the Lord could come upon those believers temporarily. The Spirit of the Lord in the New Testament certainly enables us for the task of living our lives as believers we believe that enablement is permanent in the New Testament. So, for instance, as you look through the Old Testament, you'll see God enabling individuals. You'll read about Basileel in Exodus 31. Basileel becomes a friend of Moses, and Moses is able to see that the Spirit of God has enabled Basileel for the construction of the tabernacle in all kinds of work, with metals and with wood and with curtains. 
He's been enabled by the Lord for the task of doing the artistic work for the construction of the tabernacle most glorious. You'll discover in the Old Testament in Numbers chapter 11 that when Moses listens to his father-in-law Jethro and calls along 70 elders of Israel to help in the counseling ministry that's expanded so largely in the judging of Israel that God enables those 70 elders. In Deuteronomy 34, the Old Testament specifically says that Joshua was enabled by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God was upon him. The Bible reminds us in Judges chapter 6 that Gideon had the Spirit of God upon him. In 1 Samuel 10, the Spirit of God comes upon Saul when Saul is anointed king. In 1 Samuel 16, the Spirit of God is going to depart from Saul and the Spirit of God is upon David. Why? Well, theologians talk of the theocratic anointing. This is an Old Testament anointing. It was anointing for a purpose, and it could be temporary, that the work of God may go forward with great power. But in the New Testament, the Spirit of God comes and works upon us permanently, wonderfully, placing us within the church, placing us within the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, in John 14 and verse 16, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. And listen to what he says prior to his crucifixion and ascension. Jesus says, I will pray the Father, and he will give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. Oh, the disciples were so concerned the Savior was going to leave their company. Jesus encouraged them in John 14 and verse 16 with the promise of the comforter coming and the promise that he would be with us forever. And in Acts chapter 2 and verse 4, we see that prophecy and that promise fulfilled. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 4, the Bible says that the Spirit of God descended like a dove and lighted upon them, and they were filled with the Holy Ghost. Who was filled? The church was filled. What? Don't you know, 1 Corinthians 6 says in verse 19, that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost who is in you, and you're not your own, you're bought with a price? 1 Corinthians chapter 12 says in verse 13 that by one Spirit we are all baptized into one body. Praise the Lord. At the moment of your salvation, you were baptized into the body of Christ. You were baptized into the bride of Christ. You were filled with the Spirit of God. And that baptism of the Spirit of God makes us something different. The Jew and the Gentile collectively together as a testimony of God's grace in this dispensation. And so the first question, do I have to worry about the Spirit of God leaving me. No, but I do need to worry about grieving the Spirit of God who is within me, and I do need to worry about quenching the Spirit of God who wants to lead me. There's another question that should jump off the page before we come to the practical topic of the depression that Saul is facing, and that's this. Does God send, does God send evil spirits to trouble people. Verse 14, the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. Now there's several ways to explain that. Some will come to this text and they will say, it's like Job. And you'll recall how that Satan appeared before God and focused on Job and God gave Satan the opportunity to even afflict Job, that the evil spirit came by permission of God. We always know that God is never the author of evil. But in verse 14 of 1 Samuel 16, the word for spirit that is used here is the Hebrew word ruach. 
And the word ruach is never used in the Old Testament to describe a demon. So no, I don't believe this is a demon or an angel of Satan that is coming to afflict Saul. I don't believe this is a morally evil spirit that is afflicting Saul. I believe what is happening here is God is afflicting the mind of Saul. God is allowing his mind, sadly in his sin, to be so scrambled that he's ineffective as a monarch. The word evil there is not to be read as a moral evil. It's rather to be read as a circumstance that's come upon this monarch by the will of God and by the purpose of God and by the power of God. God is allowing, I believe, in this passage, the monarch's sin to catch up with him. The wages of sin are real. Be sure your sins will find you out. And in Saul's life, the wages of sin are beginning to be paid, even his psychological disposition as reflected upon in this passage. So having said all that, what are the symptoms that we see of this spiritual depression in the life of Saul? Well, we read in verse 14, the Spirit of God was departed from Saul and an evil spirit of the Lord troubled him. In other words... Saul was terrified. Saul was overwhelmed. There was no logical reason for his being terrified. There were no enemies camped without the walls. There was simply a constant agitation in his heart. He could not rest. He was terrified in his thoughts. The word that's being used there in verse 14, bawath, means to terrify or to startle or to terrorize. It's a word that's translated throughout the Old Testament with the word to fear. In 2 Samuel chapter 22 and verse 5, it's spoken of as fear. It's spoken of in 1 Chronicles 21 and verse 30 as fear. In Daniel 8 and verse 17, again and again, you'll see this same word as to fear. It troubled him. In other words, he was terrified. He was overwhelmed. In verse 23, and it came to pass when the evil spirit from God was upon Saul that David took his harp and played with his hand and Saul was refreshed. He was well. As we read this verse, we come to discover a second symptom of the spiritual depression that had afflicted Saul. He was confused. He was perplexed. And we know that because when the music sounded, verse 23 says he was refreshed. And the word refreshed there means to have an open space, to have the burden taken away. To feel like there was some measure of relief. But before the music sounded, King Saul was confused. He was perplexed. He was living in an agitated state of fear. And you'll recall that Saul was often angry, dangerously volatile. In fact, you'll recall how he threw the javelin at David in the palace to demonstrate that his anger was no longer containable. Illogical, this king now. In his disrupted state, he's living a life filled with terrible thoughts. He's confused and perplexed. He's volatile and dangerous. Now, folks, there are any number of symptoms that a person can look at when discussing the matter of depression. And they're worthy of looking at. Medical doctors who work through matters of depression will speak of sadness. They will talk of melancholia being evidenced with moodiness. They'll talk about people having painful thinking, becoming pessimistic, derogatory in their statements toward life, introspective, 
Physical symptoms may mean loss of sleep. It may mean an altered appetite, anxiety, agitation, delusional thinking. When these things happen, believers and unbelievers all should consider communicating with medical professionals. Now we're looking in 1 Samuel 16 at a spiritual depression. Remember I said I believe that depression can come because a person is out of balance, perhaps hormonally, sometimes with long-term care, and a person finding themselves in a weakened state over time, it will affect their moods and produce a depression. We want to say from the outset this evening, folks, depression's not something to be toyed with. It's something to be taken seriously. When you see someone or think about someone who seems to be wrestling with symptoms of depression, the best thing you can do is to say, you need to make a visit with your personal physician. And the best thing you can do if someone recommends that to you, a family member or a friend or fellow believer, is make that appointment. God has given us the opportunity to live in a generation where there are those who can use medical assistance to help us. Would that have helped Saul? Well, I'll leave that to your discernment this evening. But this I know, Saul's depression was sent from God. It was a spiritual depression. And the giant of spiritual depression wears many, many masks. Spiritual depression becomes increasingly difficult to conceal. It has the ability to disfigure its victims. So we read in verse 15 that Saul's personal spiritual depression becomes evident to the people who serve and love the king. In verse 15, Saul's servant said unto him, Behold now, an evil spirit from God troubles thee. They can see the symptoms. And in your family, in your home, in your workplace, in our church, if you see people who seem to be changing before your very eyes, sometimes in a moment and sometimes over time, don't count it out. In a time when we're hearing increasing counsel that many people round about us are facing depression, don't laugh it off. And especially when we hear of increasing numbers of people committing suicide, it's something that all of us should take seriously when we ask the question, well, am I my brother's keeper? The answer is yes. Thank the Lord for these good counselors in the court of Saul who saw something changing And by the way, thank the Lord for Saul's openness to appreciate and to heed their counsel. We look now at the sources of spiritual depression. For in the life of Saul, Saul's life is here on the page of God's Word. For us to look at this life as an example for us upon whom the end of the age has come. And as we look at this life, we can see a pathology, if you will, of what it means to suffer from a spiritual depression. What was it that caused this great champion who was head and shoulders above all of the others of Israel, this man who once celebrated victories with spontaneous joy, who was very attractive to the children of Israel when they cried out that God would give them a king, God gave them Saul, and they were not discontented about the choice. What is it that suddenly changes this man into an introspective, sullen, fearful monarch suffering from depression. Let's take our Bibles and go back to 1 Samuel chapter 13. 
as we go back to 1 Samuel chapter 13, we come to discover a pattern in the life of King Saul. It's a sad pattern. It's a pattern of unconfessed sin. 1 Samuel chapter 13, we begin our reading in verse 10. It came to pass that as soon as he, that Saul, had made an end of offering the burnt offering. Now stop. Should Saul, the king, ever have offered a burnt offering? No. That was not the responsibility of the civil ruler of Israel. The spiritual rulers of Israel were given that assignment. But we discover he has made an end of offering a burnt offering, and behold, Samuel the prophet comes in verse 10. Saul went out to meet him that he might salute him, and Samuel said, What, is, what, what hast thou done? And Saul said, Because I saw that the people were scattered from me, and that thou camest not within the days appointed, and that the Philistines gathered themselves together to Michmash, Therefore said I, the Philistines will come down upon me to Gilgal, and I have not made supplication to the Lord. I forced myself, therefore, and offered a burnt offering. Saul was capable of many things. He was a capable man in battle, but he was certainly a capable man when it came to making excuses, wasn't he? I forced myself and offered a burnt offering, and Samuel said to Saul, Thou hast done foolishly. Thou hast not kept the commandment of the Lord thy God, which he commanded thee for now, would the Lord have established thy kingdom upon Israel forever? But now thy kingdom shall not continue. The Lord hath sought him a man after his own heart. There's no demonstration of a confession of sin found in the life of Saul. Oh, he's found out in his sin. And be sure your sins will find you out is the promised law of God. He's found out in his sin, but there's no sensitivity about the matter. There's no desire to repent, it seems. In fact, if you come over with me to 1 Samuel chapter 15, 1 Samuel 15, God has given a commandment to Saul in verse 3, go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have. Spare them not. Slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. God has been very specific. A total annihilation of everything of the Amalekites. How does Saul respond? Well, we see in verse 14 of this same passage, 1 Samuel 15, verse 14, Samuel said, as he came again to the camp, what means then this bleeding of the sheep in mine ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? And Saul said, oh, they brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God and the rest we have utterly destroyed. Again, excuse making when found out Again, obedient, but partially obedient. And we read in 1 Samuel 15, beginning in verse 20, Saul said unto Samuel, Yea, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone the way which the Lord sent me. I've brought Agag, the king of the Amalekites, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people, the people took of the spoil, the sheep and the oxen, and the chief things which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice unto the Lord God in Gilgal. Verse 24, And Saul said unto Samuel, Finally, I have sinned when Samuel has now confronted him. For Samuel says in verse 22, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken the fat of rams. For rebellion is the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is iniquity and adultery. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he's rejected you from being king. And finally we hear Saul say, 
to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and thy words because I feared the people. Still an excuse. He has a partial confession, but filled with an excuse and the blaming of others. I obeyed their voice. Now therefore I pray thee, pardon me and turn again with me that I may worship the Lord. Verse 30, then he said, I've sinned, yet, he says to Samuel, unimaginable, honor me now. Honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel and turn again with me that I may worship the Lord thy God. The next chapter is the 16th chapter. In the 16th chapter, we find Saul in full-blown, blown rather, spiritual depression. How did it happen? It happened in a life of partial obedience. He's carrying a burden that he's not capable of bearing. He knows he's sinned and violated God's will in his life. And it's beginning to burrow down upon him. He's facing not only unconfessed sin, but he now is facing unrealized expectations. Why, he'd expected that his son and his sons after him would follow him in the monarchy. But God has said, no, they'll be cut off, Saul. They'll be cut off because of your sin. This man demonstrates an unrelenting fear of discovery. Please, honor me now. Let, let's worship the Lord together, Samuel. Let, let the people see that everything's kind of normal. I don't want any of this coming out. We live in a culture that is Western, and Western cultures are more legally oriented. We think in terms of guilt and innocence. Middle Eastern and Eastern cultures are shame and honor cultures. In a shame and honor culture, it's very understandable that the king would be ever so fearful that he would somehow be dishonored because of his disobedience before the people who were supposed to be following him. But just because we live in a Western culture given more to legalities and we can think in our minds, well, that's been resolved. We are also a culture that faces some measure of shame and we face it even in the household of God. When it comes to discussing the matter of depression, there are many people who become very uncomfortable even talking about it, especially if it's their own or a family member's. And more than that, when we talk about unconfessed sin, when an altar call is made available and there's the thought, what will people think of me? There are many people who would rather choose their spiritual depression than choose a cleansed heart. Saul was such a person. He was living with unrelenting fear of discovery and he had this challenge of unresolved anger. And again, in 1 Samuel 18, you recall the passage, how he's seen throwing a javelin. Anger and depression often go together. They're cousins, if you will, or sisters or brothers. They're closely related. Dr. Mortimer Osto said the first step, the first step in the chain reaction producing depression is anger. Generally, even in individuals who are susceptible to depression, some current insult is necessary to trigger the progression. The Word of God says, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. If there's a moment of anger in your life, make sure to get that right. If there's a schism between you and a friend, if there's a sin unresolved, be ever so careful, be ever so vigilant. The Apostle Paul himself said, herein do I always exercise myself. To have a conscience void of offense before God and before man. Keep your conscience, for out of the, out of the heart 
flow the issues of life. And if your conscience has not been reconciled with the truths of God, the Bible says if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all of our sin. Praise the Lord. But he says, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. Certainly the source of much spiritual depression is a conscience that's been made corrupt, a conviction that the Spirit of God gives, that unresolved sin is ever following after a person. That's what's happening in the life of Saul, and that may be happening in your life. If you find yourself sinking down into a hole, ask yourself the question, can I go back in time? Do I have a relationship that's unresolved? A sin that's unconfessed? An anger that I've not resolved and found peace about? Oh, you're carrying a burden that you'll never be able to bear. Dear friend, that burden was carried by Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary, and his forgiveness needs to be requested immediately. You will find yourself, like Saul, falling into spiritual depression if you try to carry unconfessed sin, if you don't resolve your anger issues. And we look this evening in a very interesting portion of God's Word at some measure of a solution that's being offered to this spiritual depression. Saul's advisors, I believe, seek to cover up his spiritual depression. They don't really know how to cure it, but they know enough to be helpful. Their diagnosis is right. Their prescription, it's inadequate. The only adequate prescription to a spiritual depression is drawing near to the Lord and being back in fellowship with Him. But they did offer a prescription. Saul finds a measure of relief through music therapy. There's much that ought to interest us here in this passage, so I hope you'll listen carefully. As we come to 1 Samuel chapter 16, we find a solution for spiritual depression that's being offered. Because the courtiers realize that music can be mind-altering. Music can be emotion-altering. They understood what we need to understand, that the power of music is commonly recognized. Let our Lord now command, verse 16, thy servants which are before thee to seek out a man who is cunning player of the harp. And it will come to pass when the evil spirit from God is upon thee, that he shall play with his hand, and thou shalt be well. And Saul said to his servants, provide me now a man that can play well, bring him to me. For the ancient cultures, it was axiomatic that music was powerful and that music was mind-altering. We're reading about the times of David and Saul. And in the times of David and Saul, without scientific instrumentation to discover the capacity and power of music, these ancients understood something that every culture has understood. That music is a powerful medium that can be mind-altering. A century ago, a minister by the name of Ringley made the following statement. Music is a language by itself. Now remember, he's writing before phonograph. Music is a language by itself, just as perfect in its ways as speech and words, just as divine and just as blessed. As we open our Bibles to 1 Samuel 16, we find some very wise courtiers making statements about music that we need to listen to. Some of you know the name Leonard Bernstein, one of the greatest musicians of the 20th century. 
Listen to what Leonard Bernstein said about the power of music. He said, music is something terribly special. It doesn't have to pass through the sensor of the brain before it can reach the heart. An F-sharp doesn't have to be considered in the mind. It's a direct hit. and Therefore, it's all the more powerful. He's not speaking as a spiritual counselor. He's simply speaking as a musician. But he's speaking the wisdom of the ages. The Greek philosopher Seneca wrote with regard to Pythagoras, the great mathematician. Pythagoras quieted the perturbation, the agitation, if you will, of his mind with a harp. This is something that's been known for generations. And in God's Word, we find that the power of music is revealed. It's scripturally revealed. Who can doubt what the 23rd verse of 1 Samuel 16 reveals? It came to pass when the evil spirit from God was upon Saul, David took an harp, played with his hand. Something happened, folks. A lot happened. Look at the end of verse 23. Three things happened. Saul was refreshed, he was well, and the evil spirit departed from him. The power of music is scripturally revealed. There's a threefold impact upon Saul when the music plays. First, music affected his body. It affected his body. He was, it says in verse 23, he was refreshed. This is the Hebrew word, revok. It speaks of the body. Feeling refreshed like you would feel after you've had a cup of coffee or a cold shower. Something different happened in the body of Saul. When? Verse 17 says, Saul said to his servant, provide me now a man that can play well. Verse 18, then answered one of the servants and said, behold, I've seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite that is cunning in playing. Verse 23, it came to pass when the evil spirit of God was upon Saul that David took an harp and played with his hand. You know what I'm discovering here? It's musical tones that are affecting the body of the sovereign. David's not singing. We're living in a generation that is making much, and necessarily and wisely so, about the necessity of doctrinal songs. Away with the frivolities. We don't need a cadence, a mantra again and again of that which is pithy, but not soul-satisfying. We would desire to sing songs that are doctrinally accurate and challenge us to know our God in ways that we've not considered. Amen? Good stuff. But it is also necessary that we consider that tones alone are powerful. Music without words, powerful. How do you know, Pastor Phelps? I read that David just simply playing with his hand was able to affect the body. You say, well, I'm not so sure. Really? When's the last time you heard a stirring march and you found your toe tapping or your hand tapping on a hard surface? Your body is going to respond to musical cadence. It responds differently from march to waltz. It's always been that way and it will always be that way. Our bodies are so wired. There's a book by John Diamond. It's entitled, Your Body Doesn't Lie. John Diamond writes this, with the ears completely blocked, the body still responds, responds to sound. This is because we hear not only with our ears, but with our bodies. 
Diamond continues, several years ago, my research on the effect of music took an unexpected turn. Shopping in a record department of a large New York City store, I became weak and restless and generally ill at ease. The place was vibrating with rock music. Later, I did the obvious thing. I tested the effect of music. Using hundreds of subjects, I found that listening to rock music frequently causes all the muscles in the body to go weak. The normal pressure required to overpower a strong deltoid muscle in an adult male is about 40 to 45 pounds. But when rock music is played, it's only 10 to 15 pounds that's needed to weaken the muscle. Interesting. You can look into the science of it yourself. I don't really need to look more. I simply believe God's Word. God's Word says He played with His hand, and something physical happened in the monarch. Music affected His body. Music affected His mind. It affected His mind. For the Bible says He was not only refreshed, but He was well. That's the Hebrew word tov. It speaks of having a mental discipline that's been corrected. Plato, the great Greek philosopher, said music is to the mind what air is to the body. It has an effect. And again, if we would reference those who have gone before us, we would discover that in the book, The Music Within You, the author Fishman and Kosh say, People have long used music to express what's inexpressible in words. All music serves the function of stimulating, expressing, and showing emotion. All music, whether or not a love song, expresses emotion and evokes emotion within us. When that music is shared with others, the listeners are invited to empathize with the composer's experience and emotions and to add their own. Listening to music helps you hear and understand another's emotional experience. David, with his hands, with his lyre, his small harp, was able to affect the emotional state, the mental state, the physical state of the king as the Spirit of God would so allow. Pastor, why are you saying this? Because if you would be discerning and understand that as we deal this evening with spiritual depression, woven into the story of what's certainly a spiritual depression is this cauterization of it. It's not a solution to it. But it's a cauterization of it. In other words, it allows the king to be some measure functional, not cured. And I have to wonder in the generation in which we're living, if people have learned to some measure function because of what they listen to that stimulates the body and the mind, gives some measure of catharsis, but never a true cure because they haven't come to the cross and they haven't come to repent and they haven't come to know the blessing of forgiveness. There's no joy that can ever match the joy of a forgiven heart. But there's a masking that can come, a musical masking. And so I look here and I discover that music affected his spirit. The evil spirit departed from him. How important do you think music is, parent? What are your young people listening to? Young person, what are you listening to? And it's not just the young people, is it? Music affects our body our mind, and our spirit. And we as New Testament believers are challenged in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16 to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, speaking to ourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in our hearts unto the Lord. Music, listen, can mask depression. It did 
for Saul. Was it an ultimate solution? No. But it did, did it give some measure of relief? Surely. I have in my library a book on the life of David by a man, a German man, by the name of Krumacher. Krumacher's work on David was translated into the English language. Krumacher died in 1868. Listen to his counsel on the topic of music as he makes reference to it in 1 Samuel 16. I think it's poignant. I think it's necessary for our generation. He said, Music can unfetter the most destructive passions, but can also, at least momentarily, tame and mitigate the wildest storms of the human heart. He said this before rock music was ever even composed. He said this before electronic devices were ever plugged into ears. He said this before amplification ever it had the capacity to make flesh tremble. He continues, whatever noble impulses, unobserved and stumbling, may lie concealed within the breast of man, may be aroused by music and brought forth into the light of day, but at the same time it may stir the vilest passions in the lowest regions of our human nature and accelerate the maturity of those actions. How prescient. How wise. There is a whole society today in America called the American Music Therapy Association. Music therapy became very much in vogue after World War II, very much used in our veterans' hospitals and by veterans' doctors, not only for the emotion that was stirred in the battlefield, but today it's used for autism, it's used for cancer, it's even used for those who are suffering from drug abuse and alcoholism. Music therapy is a real deal. It's real. Why is it that only Christians in the culture in which we live seem to argue that music is amoral? Why is it that only Christians would ever believe that it doesn't matter how you frame theology in what cadence or tone it is sung? It doesn't matter. Why is it? Perhaps they haven't looked at the life of King Saul and discovered that spiritual depression is real and the covering of sin is real. It causes an agitated heart and a fearfulness of being found out. And in the end, the only real solution to it is asking God's forgiveness and being cleansed by His grace. There's masking, and the masking can bring even greater danger, and we'll see that in the weeks ahead. Saul's emotional state is masked by the music that's played. Don't let yours be. This podcast has been a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church, a church home for all people. What you've heard has been an encouragement to you. Please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. If you'd like to connect with Colonial or find more resources, you can find us online at colonialindy.org or check us out on Facebook. I'm on the Colonial Hills Podcast.